this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I should have said about push 21, uh, the youth weekend, which is coming up very, very soon. Uh, Rachel's sunning herself in Spain at the moment, and Becky's not here, so. But what date is that? Can you remember? The 6th. Friday night, 6th. So anybody going in that, uh, uh, let David know here, because the other ones is not here to let them. So let David know if you're planning on going to that and you haven't got your name down. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, reading from verse 7 to verse 12. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to, the good, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Particularly verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, when I was a boy growing up, I must have spent endless years waiting for my daddy's boat to come in. Now, my daddy wasn't a sailor. I wasn't standing on the dockside. He wasn't overseas. It was just that every time I asked my mother to buy me a bicycle or a pair of baseball boots or take us to Portrush for the day, the answer was always the same. Wait until your daddy's boat comes in. Now, my daddy's boat never did come in, I have to tell you. We didn't have much in those days, but what we had was enough. We had a happy family, a loving, caring family, so that was enough. But our daddy's boat never did come in. But thank God the Christian's boat has come in. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature. That's a lot has been given to us, isn't it? Verse 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. But not only do we have an inheritance, but actually we are an inheritance. We have an inheritance in Christ, but we are an inheritance for Christ. Because verse 18, which we didn't read, of course, says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So this morning we're going to look at these two aspects 
of our inheritance. The fact that we have an inheritance and the fact that we are an inheritance. We have an inheritance. Now, an inheritance is a gift. It's something that is bequeathed to you. It's not something that you can earn or that you can merit. It's something that is given freely, handed down, and it is giving, given solely at the discretion of the giver. Earthly inheritance are often contested. Somebody said that where there's a will, there's a war. Did you see in the paper this week where some dear wee woman in England left over half a million pounds to the government of the day to use as they desired? Meaning, of course, the government of the day would use that wisely, constructively for the nation. Of course, our coalition government, God bless them, decided that was for their parties. And they quietly divvied it up between them until the Daily Mail got a whiff of that, splashed it in the front page, and now they've had to retract and they've had to give it to the nation as it was meant for in the first place. But wills are very often contested. Somebody feels that they didn't get their proper share. Or that lovely piece of jewelry that the wee granny left that they had coveted for years but somebody else got it instead. And suddenly there is an unholy row over a will. Many a will has absolutely torn families apart over a few pounds or a piece of jewelry. But thank God when it comes to our inheritance in Christ, it is exactly the same for all of us. All of us get the same. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, Paul said in Romans 8. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? 1 Corinthians 3, 21 to 23. All things are yours, Paul said. Whether things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And so we have an inheritance equally all of us have got the same rights, the same privileges, the same benefits, the same blessings have been left for us. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Everything Christ has we have been given as joint heirs. Our inheritance in Christ is the same. We have the riches of his grace. We have the riches of his glory. We have the exceeding riches of Christ, the Bible says. We have the unsearchable riches of Christ. We who are now possessors of the riches of his grace will become partakers of the riches of his glory. I'll say that again because I'm not sure that you got that. We who are possessors of the riches of his grace will become partakers of the riches of his glory. 
There is much more ahead than can we possibly ever imagine. So all of eternity will never be enough to exhaust all of the riches of God's grace towards us in Christ. A million years from now, God will still be demonstrating His grace towards us in Christ in ways that right now we can't even begin to imagine. Ephesians 2, 4-6 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. As far as we possibly could look into the infinity of eternity, there'll be a grace available for each of us. Every moment of every day we will live in the grace of God and in the riches of his glory. Isn't that wonderful? Just to know that. Peter says about the manifold grace of God, the multifaceted, the many-sided grace of God. Paul speaks of the manifold wisdom of God. As long as we live on this earth, there'll be a grace and a wisdom for each day of our lives. When we need the grace, it will be there. When we need the wisdom, it will be there. It's available for us. It's part of our inheritance in Christ. So how can an inheritance be inherited? Well, somebody has to write a last will and testament. There's a program on television called The Air Hunters. And it's about those who have not made a will that their estate when they die goes to the government. And the government holds that for about 30 years. And each week they release the names of those estates that's held by the government so that firms of solicitors can go out and try to find some beneficiaries. It may be a long-lost cousin. It may be an uncle that didn't know. Somebody out there. And they'll go to great lengths. And they look up electoral lists. And, and they look up marriage certificates and death certificates and birth certificates. And they go to great lengths in order to find somebody. Of course, there's money in it for them. They get a percentage. But somebody, maybe a second cousin somewhere, suddenly finds they've inherited 10,000 pounds that they never even knew. They had a relative that owned such a thing or had such money. So it's always wise, by the way, to make a will. I've said this over the years lots of times. I don't know whether you listen to me or not. If you don't make it, the government's going to get it. And you don't want that, sure you don't. You make a will and make sure that where you want it to go, that's where it's going to go. You don't want somebody else making that decision for you. So somebody has to write a last will and testament. Now the testator, the person who wrote the will, could change that a hundred times if they want. They could write it today and change it tomorrow. They could change it five minutes before they die. But once they die, 
it cannot be changed. Generally speaking, it is set. Somebody has to write a last will and testament. And in a sense, God made his last will and testament before the very foundation of the world. And we are included in it. In verses 3 and 4, did you notice that of Ephesians 1? You didn't notice it because we didn't read it. We started at verse 7, but we'll notice it now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. But has chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Before this world ever existed, God knew that it would, and He knew that you would be on it. And He had a will for you. And that will is written for us to read and to get to know and to understand. In a sense, then, this New Testament is God's last will and testament. It cannot be changed. The testator has died. It's set. So we can read it and we can see what's ours in Christ and through Christ. This is our inheritance. As I said, a will only comes into force when a testator dies. In Hebrews chapter 9, Verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no part at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the thing in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And so Christ has died and has rose again. His will is set. There has to be an executor 
to make sure that the will is carried out. Some of you may one day be appointed an executor of somebody's will. Maybe you're already appointed, only it hasn't happened yet. And if that is the case, then you uh, will have to gather together those who are the beneficiaries of the will. You'll have to explain to them uh, what is left to them as an inheritance. Now, the wonderful thing about Christ is, not only was he the testator of the will, but by virtue of his resurrection, he now is the executor of his own will, which would be impossible for an ordinary man to be. But because he died and because he rose again, then he is the executor of his own will. Now, he sent his Holy Spirit in order to enlighten us and to show us what is in his will and give us the strength and the power and the wisdom to be able to be blessed and benefit by his will. Do you understand that? Hmm? Have you got that? Or is that too complicated for you this morning? Is it too early on Sunday morning to get your brain around that? And so, for example, when we read the Word of God, the Holy Spirit enlightens us to the Word of God. He shows us the benefits and the blessings. He gives us the guidance and the wisdom to be able to carry out the Word of God and to receive the benefits and the blessings of the Word of God. Our inheritance is written here. So the Holy Spirit comes and enables us to do this. And Christ has entrusted the Holy Spirit to help us, to lead us and guide us. Someone has to lay claim to the will. Paul said to Timothy to lay hold of eternal life. There is a receiving, there is a taking, the gift is offered, the inheritance is offered, but we have got to lay hold upon it. And I am certain and sure that there's not a one of us has lay hold on everything God has got for us. The Apostle Paul said that. He says, I have not apprehended, I have not laid hold on everything that God has apprehended me for. But I press on. I go forward. I'm still after it. Isn't that what he said? I have, not I have not laid hold on everything that God has laid hold on me for, but I'm following after. Haven't got there yet, but I'm chasing it. I'm going after it. And that ought to be our attitude as well. I haven't received everything. I haven't laid hold of everything. And you haven't either. But our heart is to follow after. Our heart is to see this and then to go after this and say, God, this belongs to me. This is mine. This is part of my inheritance. And then, not only do we have an inheritance, but we are an inheritance. Verse 18, And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, let me just for a moment just digress just a little bit. 
We believe that the Bible is inspired, that it's God-breathed, that even though it was written by men, but it was by men who were inspired of the Holy Spirit. They just did not write out of their heads, but they were directed and guided, even maybe unconsciously, but they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So in a very true sense, the Holy Spirit really is the author of the Scriptures, but He used men to put it down. Now, if you ever any doubt about that, you need to look no further than John chapter 17, Christ's great prayer for the church. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a prayer that you ought to be very familiar with. It's a prayer that you ought to read often. You could preach a thousand sermons on that prayer alone. It is a wonderful, wonderful prayer. Think of this for a moment. John is an old man now. Very old. He's the only surviving member of all of the apostles. Peter is long since dead. James' brother is dead. Nathaniel, Philip, all of them, martyrs for Christ, gone. The apostle Paul, the great mighty evangelist missionary, is gone, dead. Three generations of the church has now come. John has outlived all of that. He's a very old man. And then he feels the stirring of the Holy Spirit to write another gospel and three epistles. And then eventually the great book of Revelation which closed the canon of the Scriptures. So he feels a stirring inside of him to write another gospel. Three gospels are already in existence. All of Paul's letters are in existence. Writings of James, Peter, Jude. They're all out there. He's probably read most of them, if not all of them. Matthew writes a gospel. Matthew's gospel was for the Jews, primarily. Mark's gospel was primarily for the Romans, and Luke's gospel was for the Greeks. But the Holy Spirit wanted a gospel for the church. And what a gospel it is. It's like no other gospel. It's not like the other three. In fact, there's only seven incidences that John records that all the other gospel writers record also. The rest of John's writings are all fresh. Things that they didn't record. Things that they missed or the Holy Spirit didn't cause them to record them. So it's a wonderful gospel. The other three, by the way, are called the synoptic gospels. Coming from sin and optic. In S-Y-N, sin, that means together, like a, a synthesis. It's music put together. Synthesizer. An optic to see. So it means to see together. So when you read 
uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke, there's a lot of similarities. Oh, there's a lot of variations, but there's a lot of similarities. But when you come to John's gospel, it's entirely different. And the other three focus a lot on, on Jesus' Galilean ministry, but John focused a lot on Jesus' Judean ministry. And, and a lot of John's writings is relating to the last part of Jesus' life. And so it's very, very different. And so he feels this stirring inside to write a gospel, the last gospel. Now remember, he's looking back now, perhaps even 60 years. And his mind's going back to those three and a half years that he spent with Christ. He was as close to Christ as any man on earth has ever been. He was with Jesus during all of those wonderful times when he heard him preaching and all those parables and all those great sermons, seeing all of those miracles. He was with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's with Christ at his trial. He was with Christ at his crucifixion. He was with Christ at his resurrection. He was with Christ when Christ ascended up to the glory from Mount Olivet. He was there through it all. And he's looking back now, thinking about penning this wonderful gospel, and he's looking back perhaps 60 years. And he's thinking about that time, just hours before Jesus would go to the cross, and he's thinking of this great prayer that Jesus prayed. Now, even though John was a good man, but I don't think he had a photographic memory. I think he needed the help of the Holy Spirit to remind him of that great prayer. And I can imagine the age John sitting down, perhaps in a chair, with his quill and his vellum or whatever he was using to write, and he was saying, Holy Spirit, help me. And he would think back to the garden and he would think of that great prayer that Jesus prayed. You know, they struggled to keep awake during Jesus' prayer time in the garden. You remember that? Jesus had to chide them about that. Could you not wait with me one hour? Could you not watch with me one hour? But he was thinking, what were the words that Jesus said? And then the Holy Spirit would bring back to his remembrance. Because that's one of the promises of the Holy Spirit too, isn't it? And he would begin to write down this wonderful prayer that Jesus prayed. And here's, there's many things in this prayer that's worthy of our attention, which we don't have time to do this morning. But here's a couple of wonderful things that you need to notice. Seven times in this one prayer. Now remember, this is hours before Jesus is going to the cross to die. And the wonderful thing about the prayer is that it reveals the heart of the Master. This was his passion. The final thing he would pray about. This revealed his heart, his passion. So that's why we ought to read it. But one of the things he says seven times. So that shows you that it was really, really on his heart. 
Seven times he declares that the Father had given him, had, sorry, the Father had given us to him. Seven times he said that. Look at it in John 17. In John 17 verse 2, As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And then as you go on down to verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. They were yours and you gave them to me. Here it is again. Then in verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the word, but for those whom you have given me. And then verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. And then verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name, those whom you gave me. And then you go all the way down Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you give me. Seven times he said clearly that the Father had given us to him. Can you imagine if you were related to Bill Gates, the owner of Microsoft? I think he's the second richest man on earth or the Sultan of Brunei, who I think is the richest man on earth, or Warren Buffett, who's the fourth richest man on earth. Can you imagine if you related to one of those guys and it came their birthday? I mean, what would you buy them? What would you get them? I mean, you'd be stuck, wouldn't you? A yacht? <laughs> I've already got one of those. An airplane? Well, I've got half a dozen of those things. An island somewhere, they'd probably get one of those too. That'd be a hard choice, wouldn't it? But what would God Almighty give his son? <laughs> he gave him you and me as inheritance. Isn't that incredible? that as a gift to his son. He could have given another universe if he wanted. But he didn't want to. He looked down. He said, son, I'm going to give you them. I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance. Psalm 2. So God looked at you and said, I'm going to give you as a gift to my son. I just think that's incredible that God would do that. By the way, six times, very clearly, not only did he say, he already said seven times that the Father had given us to him, but he says six times very clearly, <laughs> And this is wonderful. That he was sent by the Father to us. 
So he's saying that God gave him to us. I'll not go over all those six times, but actually the seventh time, it implies that in the seventh time in verse 8. Because he says, And have known surely that I came forth from you. So that's the same as he sent me to you. So think about this for a moment. The Father gave him to us, and he gave us to him. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? And that's what was on his heart, literally ours before he went to the cross. The fact that, now, we know that in the context of John 17, his men was around him, his disciples was there, and he was speaking specifically about them. But because this is his prayer for the church, it's about us too. Because he could look farther into the future and see us. But think of this for a little moment as well. <laughs> I mean, this is almost unbelievable, but it's good for us to know this. Look at verse 9 of John 17. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And then he says, and I am glorified in them. <laughs> I'm really glad that little bit's in there. I am glorified in them. Now, he's obviously thinking about initially, immediately those disciples around him. And of course, through them, we would come. So this includes us. But think about those men around him. At his greatest moment of crisis in the garden, they can hardly keep their eyes open when he's praying. They're falling asleep. And a few hours from now, when he said that, I am glorified in them, a few hours literally just from saying that, do you know what? They all forsook him and fled. Peter even denied, even swore with an oath that he ever knew the man. Judas had gone his way to betray him. Out of all of those men, only John, he was the only one that remained and was at the cross out of them all. All of those big, brave disciples lagged it. When the heat came on and the pressure came on and the persecution came, they ran away afraid. And yet, here he is saying, I am glorified in them because he looked beyond their weaknesses and their failures and he saw what they were going to be. And he could see Peter on the day of Pentecost filled with the Holy Ghost preaching his first sermon and 3,000 get saved. He could see that. He could see these men beyond the next few hours he could see over their years of life where they would lay down their lives for him, some in distant lands, for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Now that's good to know. In our weaknesses, in our failures, in the times we let the Lord down, aren't you glad he can see beyond our weaknesses and beyond our failures and see what he's going to make us and what we can be in Christ 
Somebody looks at a big slab of marble, and that's all they see, a big slab of marble. Michelangelo looks at it, what does he see? He sees a big angel in it. He sees David in it. He sees a beautiful statue in it. He can see beyond the immediate. And Christ sees beyond our immediate, and he sees what we will become in him and what we are becoming in him. So encourage yourself when you slip and you fall and you make your mistake or you get it wrong or you mess up. Encourage yourself. Go to him and repent. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. Pick yourself up, dust yourself down and go on. Christ can see what you're going to become in him. And let me finish with this. In order for us to be Christ's inheritance, if we're the inheritance that's left for him, then we have to die. We have to die to self. We have to die to sin. We have to be crucified to this world. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. When Hannah prayed for a man-child, for a son, whenever she received that son of promise, in 1 Samuel 2 and 8, here's what she cried from her heart out. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. Beloved, this morning, you and I have been lifted from the ash heap. We were poor, miserable beggars, spiritually speaking. But now, he has caused us to inherit a throne of glory. He set us among princes. <laughs> You've got a wonderful inheritance today. Much more than we have ever claimed. Much more than we have ever taken. I wonder percentage-wise how much we have actually taken that's ours in Christ. I would say the percentage is quite small. That would be one of the disappointments when we get to heaven. We see all that was available that we didn't use. But I'm going to agree with what Paul said, but I follow after. Haven't got there yet. Haven't received all of it, but I'm going to follow after. Because Christ has died to make it possible. He's died to leave us an inheritance. And we're his inheritance. That's the mystery of God. It's only by his grace, isn't it? that he has given us his inheritance to his son. So we're going to pray.